Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to rule and reign over this world. We pray that you will bring the kingdom of God to full completion. That peace will reign. That justice will be known in its entirety. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will use us to bring about that day. Amen. So this is a big passage with lots of stuff in it. We are continuing our series on Isaiah. There's, there's lots of different points here. Um, so I'm going to whiz through it. If you're, if you're following in your Bibles, it might, you might help make sense of what I say. Or it might not. It might just confuse you more, but we'll see. Uh, if this sermon was to have a title, if sermons are allowed to have titles, uh, this is How to Make a Wolf Lie Down with a Lamb and Not Have Only One Animal in the Morning. Um, there's a ruder title I'll, you can ask me about afterwards. Uh, Isaiah is speaking. He's prophesying God's words over the Israelites. And the Israelites are living under oppression from the Assyrians. They're worried that at any point the Assyrians will send their armies and just be fed up with the Israelites and wipe them all out. And they're also worried that their sin, the way they've turned away from God's plan, means that the, the protection of the Almighty will be taken away from them. They're worried about, both about the external threat of what might happen to them from the, from the Assyrians, but they're also worried about their own righteousness. We've heard this in, in Isaiah 1 that we spoke about the all-age service at the beginning of the month. We spoke, heard about this a bit last week. They're worried about the incoming Assyrian army, and they are looking for a hero. And Isaiah starts to tell them about the ultimate hero, the heroes that's going to solve it all. That he will come from a shoot and a branch of Jesse. Jesse being the father of King David. They know that he'll come from David's line. And he'll be full of the Holy Spirit. Now in the Old Testament, up until this point, the, the Holy Spirit is described in terms that rest on, the Holy Spirit rests on particular people for particular purposes for particular times. If you sat through Alpha, you've heard me talk about this in quite some length. But in Exodus 21, there's a man called Bezel or something like that, I can't pronounce it, um, who the Holy Spirit rests on and he is given creative gifts in order to decorate God's tabernacle. A more familiar story is in Judges 6, where the Spirit rests on Gideon, and Gideon is full of courage and boldness and able to lead God's people to victory. Or we know the story of Samson in, uh, later in Judges, in chapter 15, where the Spirit rests on Samson and gives him incredible strength. The Spirit resting on particular people at particular times for particular purposes. But in this passage, we start to get a glimpse of the Spirit doing something different. Resting on a particular person in the future, a particular time, but the gifts of the Spirit seem almost complete and, and full. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, it says in verse 2. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall delight in the fear of the Lord, it says. It seems all-encompassing. Wisdom, understanding, counsel. This person will have a fresh and different knowledge and indeed relationship with God. Something new is coming. The passage goes on to describe this coming hero as judge with power to strike the earth. He's given powers normally associated in the Israelite tradition with God, with Yahweh. I'm assuming that we've all realized that Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. Got that? Isaiah is prophesying the coming of God's Son, of the one who is anointed, who reveals to us the very nature of the Father God. That the baby born in the manger is God in our midst. That he's the judge. That he can strike the earth with power. And then it describes him in a curious term that we'll come back to. We're not going to delve into this now. It says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. So we've got this all-powerful judge who has all the counsel and the wisdom that the Spirit pours on him, and he's going to judge not by what he sees, not by what he hears. We'll come back to that. And then Isaiah paints a picture of what the world will be like, what creation will be like when Jesus comes, when Jesus rules. With beauty you read before, the wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Don't let the poetic nature and the, the wonderful way it was read distract you from the fact that this is ridiculous. And actually, in the Israelites' time, when they were much more familiar with, with um, livestock and their behavior, they would have realized how ridiculous this is. This is not an instruction on how to do animal husbandry. You don't let wolves live with lambs. If you do, you expect to only have a wolf in the morning. And a very satisfied wolf he will be. <laughs> Cows and bears don't mit. That's why when you go to the zoo, there are fences. Here's one. Here's one. We're thinking about doing a parents' course. Here's stage one of the parents' course. You could possibly let your child look after a calf. Might be a bit messy. Don't let your child look after a lion. Top tip there. Yet this passage suggests all these things are going to happen. The thing about this is it's telling of a new creation. This means that the world with Jesus in it changes completely. And this is not something that we live and inhabit and understand easily. We tend to think that life with Jesus is a bit like life now, but with the rough edges knocked off. The church, 
us individuals underestimating the enormity and all-encompassing nature of Jesus' work is the foundation of so much bad theology and understanding in the church. I hear again and again in subtle ways a version of the gospel which is about incremental change rather than a complete renewing and restoration. If you're just a good Christian, it'll be all right. Just be a little bit nicer to each other. If we just love each other, it'll be fine. You don't get wolves and lambs to lie down together by training them really well. You don't get a bear to live with a cow by warning it about the dangers of red meat. You don't get the rule and power of Jesus in this world by adapting and changing who you are, but it's by a complete reversal, a complete change of who we are. We love religion. For some reason, it's in human nature. We love religion that tells us just to change a bit and it makes you feel a little bit guilty about not changing enough. There is something about human nature which, which feeds off that. And for that reason, we, we let it inhabit our churches. We let it inhabit our worlds. I had lunch with um, a friend of mine who's a, a vicar just north of the A40 um, a couple of weeks back. He said, I hate January. Because the gym car park's always really full. Religion's a bit like that, isn't it? We, what we end up doing is we end up sitting there going, I'll try a little bit harder now. And it works well for about three weeks, and then we start to drop away from it. And by February, the gym, gym car park's empty again, because we, we're all not going to the gym, but we feel guilty about it. And sometimes we can think that church or religion or faith in Jesus is a bit like that. We'll try really hard and stop doing that thing that I know gets in the way. I'll stop looking at that thing. I'll stop thinking about that thing. I'll stop handing about those people. The gospel is not about that effort. The gospel is complete change. It is the transformation of you and I in a complete way. It is the revolution of this world with the love and power of Jesus Christ. It's less like gym membership and more like a heart transplant. That's not really a good analogy. It's the best I've got. And I spent a long time thinking about an analogy for that. It's a complete change, not a step change. And we see this again and again in Scripture. Ezekiel 36 says, A new heart I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is not in the business of making you a better person. He's in the business of making you a new person. That new person will be better than you are now. He wants, you to, he wants to make you a new person. He is creating a new creation where wolf and lamb live together, and he wants us to be part of it. We don't get there just by being the same as we are. It's not that the whole of creation changes and is renewed and restored, and you stay roughly the same. But if we allow Jesus to come inside, we die to ourselves, and we're completely remade. I don't know how it is, and this is a... Um, comment on lots of things at the moment. 
that the church seems to find itself in the position of communicating to the world that we just want the world to behave nicely or in a particular way. Rather than to die to yourself and receive the power of Christ's resurrection. That's why I've delighted in doing full immersion baptisms here. Because we see played out not a, not a moral lesson of do better, but we see people die to themselves and risen again. For some reason, the church has been known for the Ten Commandments. If you go and do any outreach to people, you talk about religion, they go, oh yeah, it's just like following the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Don't then follow up with, okay, what's, the, what's commandment number six? Because people then go silent. But the sad thing about that is somehow the church has taken the story of Exodus and made it all about following a list of rules rather than making it about a God who saved people from slavery, a God who split the sea so people could escape oppression and receive new life, about a God who rescues and redeems and restores people. Somehow in our communication, we've made that story all about don't do that, don't touch it. The Sermon on the Mount, here's something controversial for you, the Sermon on the Mount is a rubbish moral code unless you acknowledge who's, who's speaking it. If I stood up here and told you to live like the Sermon on the Mount, you'd think I was mad. It talks about to- chopping off limbs, gouging out eyeballs. The Sermon on the Mount makes sense because it's for those who believe they can die to themselves and experience Christ's resurrection. The Sermon on the Mount makes sense because it speaks of a new creation that is completely different from this creation, where sin is completely removed from us. The mission of the church is not to tell the world how to behave. The mission of the church is to offer the living bread of life that is in Christ Jesus. For the last 50 years, the church has tried to tell the world how to behave and how not to behave. And you can look at the statistics of where church attendance has gone with that. We need to start telling the world that there is one hope, one life, one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. Then, when in the family of God, then you are transformed and renewed. Yes, then there is standards of behavior. Then, yes, there is encouraging one another and being transformed. In Christ, we will change. In Christ, we will know life in its fullness. But we need to stop trying to force life in its fullness on those who don't know Christ. We need to get those people to know Christ first. Whenever we try to lecture the world on on ethics and morals, Jesus warned us about it. When you tell your neighbour about the speck in their eye, they'll see the plank in your eye. The outrageous thing of the gospel is that Christ wants to meet with you and wants you in him, and that's how you know eternal life. It's a hard message to the world. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We've got too used to trying to make the the message of the cross something sensible and common sense. It's outrageous. 
so outrageous that in this passage, it describes children playing with snakes. Again, Parents of Tools 101, don't let your children play with poison snakes. Not until the new creation. Then they can do what they want. Because it's dangerous. But you see the tie here to, to Genesis. In Genesis 3, we're told that the serpent brings sin into the world. The child, and it was told the child of Eve will strike the serpent's head and he will strike the child of Eve's heel. The whole of the, the falling of creation from God's presence in Genesis 3 is returned by this coming hero, by the coming of Jesus Christ. This is why it will say, this is why it says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor by what his ears hear. For righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be his belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. It can say he will not judge us by what he sees, and he will not judge us by what he hears. Because he'll no longer see the sin in us and the sin in the world because he will have removed it by his death and resurrection. Our judgment will not be based on what God has seen us do or heard us say, but it will be on whether or not we are in him and in his kingdom, submitted to his rule, trusting in him. This stuff about belts around waist and belts around loins was a, a mimicking of how the Assyrians were dressed. They would have a belt around their waist and a belt around their loins. I don't really know what that looks like, and I don't want to draw a diagram or anything. But they, he was mimicking how the Assyrians were coming. They were frightened about an army coming to kill them. And the message here is, who are you dressed like? Are you dressed like the coming army that is evil and full of sin? Or are you dressed... Like the Saviour? Are you clothed in Him? Where is your trust? Whose side are you on? Whose uniform are you wearing? Whose army are you part of? Because you cannot be part of one and be part of the other. And nor can you move from one to the other just by making incremental changes. It needs to be a full leap. All will be overturned. Every part of creation will be renewed and restored. And the question is, is are we part of the person who's going to restore it? Are we on his side? Or are we working towards it? Because we'll never get there if we, if we do it that way. I've been here on too long. I'll cancel that bit. For some reason, I find the church, I get frustrated with pronouncing the moral stuff left, right, and center. And there is a place for discipleship and growing in Christ and calling each other out to be better and to be more Christ-like. But that place is in the church and in the loving community of Christ Jesus. It is not to do it to those who are slaves to sin. The worst thing to do to a slave to sin is to shout at them saying, stop being a slave! Because that's not really helpful. 
Those who are slaves to sin need to be, not, need to be told there is a rescuer and a redeemer who sets you free from those chains. And we're all broken and fallen. I stand up here not asking you to look at me and go, oh, he's a good guy, I'll follow him. Because I'm not. But Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my faithfulness. Look at him. Always him. For he is the new creation. Where lions and lambs will lie down together. I pray and I hope and I try to put my heart and soul in him. There are bits that still I hold back from him. But let's start by turning completely and utterly towards Jesus and putting our hope and trust in him. Amen.